you would please open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 6, where our focus today is going to be on verses 3 through 5. And I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Galatians 6, 1 through 5 is what I'll be reading. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another For each one shall bear his own load. Let's take a moment to pray. Uh, Holy Father, uh, we have uh, just fittingly prayed in that last song that you would send forth your word and let there be light. And uh, that's what we're here for, to hear your word as you send it forth through your word, through the scriptures, and to be enlightened. It's our prayer that as a result of our time together in your word this morning that you would make us more like Christ. Fill us with your spirit to that end, I pray. Help us to understand what it is that you want us to glean from this text today and to apply it to our lives and also to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper that we might take it in a worthy manner. We ask all these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, You'll have to think back to a few weeks ago, right before I I began a two-week vacation, when we focused our attention on how the Apostle Paul describes the Christian life as a battle between the flesh and the spirit, and we looked into the preceding context in Galatians 5 for that. We saw how he further describes how crucial it is that we follow the Spirit's leading if we're going to have victory in the conflict. He even describes walking in the Spirit as similar to the way that a soldier follows his commander and heeds his commands. We're like soldiers um, who are at war. Uh, We must follow our leader, the Holy Spirit, and heed his commands. And we find those commands, of course, in Scripture. And just as when one soldier is exhausted or wounded and others have to help carry the load, Even so, we must all recognize our responsibility to bear one another's burdens. And that was the focus of our previous study a couple of weeks back, or three weeks ago, rather, uh, when we looked at verses 1 and 2 in some detail. But the focus of today's study is on the responsibility each one of us has to bear his own load. After all, uh, if we stick with the metaphor a little bit, every soldier in battle is ultimately, ultimately responsible for his own pack. Right. This responsibility is emphasized in verse 5, and I'm going to sort of do this uh, examination of these verses in sort of reverse order. I'm going to begin with verse 5 and then go back to verses 3 and 4. You'll notice at verse 5 there's the word for there, so it follows on from what's been said in verses 3 and 4. And of course, verse 3, as we're going to see in our discussion of that verse later, follows on from what was said in verses 1 and 2. And so Paul's building a case here culminating in what he says in verse 5, where he writes, For each one shall bear his own load. 
Now, the Greek word translated load here, and I think I may have given this to you in your handout there, in the notes that I prepared for you, so it'll be easier for you to follow along. When I have lots of scriptures, I like to do that, and occasionally I'll put a quote in there that I think is helpful, and in this case, uh, I want you to have a good idea of what this term is that's translated load here. It's defined by the linguistic key to the Greek New Testament as a burden or a load which one is expected to bear, and it was used as a military term for a man's pack or a soldier's kit. So you can see that Paul is using military-type terms here, and that's not unusual for him because he, he talks about the Christian life, as he has already done, as a battle. And of course, he in Ephesians, for example, he talks about the spiritual conflict we're in and how we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places and so forth. We're in a constant spiritual battle. So it's not surprising that he would use this metaphor of, of a, a soldier throughout his writings in one way or another. Here he more alludes to it than coming out directly and saying it. Um, <clears throat> the word is obviously used figuratively here then to describe a kind of load uh, that each believer must bear and that only he himself can bear. But how do we understand, then, the two responsibilities Paul has enjoined upon us in this passage? On the one hand, to bear one another's burdens, and on the other hand, to each bear his own load. Notice I use two different words there, burden and load. That's because there's two different words in the Greek text. And... uh, Many people see a contradiction here, but I I don't see one because Paul is using two different words to mean two different things. He's talking about our loads from a different point of view, right? I agree, in fact, with the assessment of Spiros Zodiates, who has ably addressed this matter, I believe, in his complete word study dictionary. And he writes this, and this may be in your notes. I hope it is. Some critics contend that a contradiction exists in Galatians 6 between Paul's injunction that we should bear one another's burdens and his assertion that every man should bear his own burden. However, the conflict is only apparent. In Galatians 6.2, the word for burden is baros, or burden or a difficulty. And in Galatians 6.5, the word for burden is fortion. And there he says it has more the idea of responsibility. In the first case, Christians are being enjoined to help each other bear up under the vicissitudes of life. That's in the word for difficulties and tribulations, right? Um, In the last case, he writes, Christians are told that each person must assume responsibility for his particular, hence idios in the Greek, one's own duties in life. They have no right to shirk their responsibilities or to expect others to perform them. So, Paul teaches in this passage that mutual accountability and personal responsibility go hand in hand, doesn't he? At least for the Christian, it should be for everybody. We must never emphasize one without the other. We must each bear one another's burdens, and we must also each bear his own load. Uh, Scott McKnight wrestles with this issue in his commentary on this passage, and I'm going to quote him at some length because I think he moves into an area of application that I think is important for us in our our current context. He writes this, Our personal responsibility before God does not rob us of our accountability to others, nor does it put us on a deserted island to live a solitary life. These are Western problems that need to be faced. And the message of Paul 
a mutual accountability that does not deny personal responsibility and a personal responsibility that does or that includes rather mutual accountability stares our world in the face. He writes, I make one more observation regarding personal responsibility. In our culture, we have become acutely aware of the origins and causes of our behavior. I am aware, for instance, that certain aspects of my personality come from what I learned from my father and mother. I am aware as well that some of my traits, both good and bad, appear in my two children. This is a common perception today. But in this process, at times, there is an implicit excuse for our personality traits or our behavior. I cannot help it, one might cry, because this is how I was raised. Or, you would not blame me if you knew my past. We must emphasize here, or sympathize rather, excuse me, we must sympathize here with the obvious reality that what we do and who we are result from what others have made us, but we should not refrain from recognizing that certain bad dimensions of people are not solely their fault. But what the Bible teaches is that we are personally responsible for everything we are and for everything we do, in spite of these other influences on us. I think he's right about that. The Bible teaches that we are personally responsible for everything we are and for everything we do, regardless of the causes and problems we might have. This, of course, leads to an entire feature of application, urging people to accept responsibility for everything they do and are. Paul teaches that we must bear our own burdens in this regard. I think that's well put, for the most part. I essentially agree with McKnight's position, but I think it's also important to point out that when Paul says that Each one shall bear his own load. He's speaking in the future tense. So, to be sure, although we must each recognize our own responsibilities now, what Paul has primarily in mind here is a future accountability before God, which I think will happen at the final judgment. Paul also speaks of this future judgment for Christians in his first epistle to the Corinthians. This is in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 through 15. And he's speaking here of ministers of the gospel such as himself, uh, but I think this is, it's a principle that applies to all believers. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15 says this, According to the grace of God which was given to me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. He's the one who first brought the gospel to Corinth, remember, and others have come in and built on the foundation that he laid there. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul had laid down a proper foundation in Corinth. He's concerned that some who are coming and trying to build on that foundation might not be properly building, right? Right? And he's, he's issuing a warning here about that. And he says, Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. Of course, he's speaking metaphorically here. Those who build on the foundation of Christ alone, right, properly, according to the word of God, are those who are building 
with these good things like gold, silver, and precious stones. And those who don't build well are those who are building with these things that are like wood, hay, and straw. And so he says, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work. Now, these, these are metaphorical terms that he's been using and, and probably the fire is a metaphorical as well, but it certainly describes a judgment of God by which all these things will be tested. He says the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is at the end of verse 13. And then he says, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. And in the context here of reward, must be what he means. And then he's careful to say, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. He makes it clear that the judgment he's talking about isn't to determine whether we're saved or not. That's decided in this life. Paul writes often that we have been saved by grace through faith. That's already done. Uh, He writes that that future glorification, which we talked about some weeks back, is a certainty for us, right? Here he's talking about God's testing and judgment of how we lived out our Christian life, what we did with the saving faith that we're given, right? How we served in the body of Christ and whether or not what we did has lasting value. Interestingly enough, it's God who enables to do these things and then rewards us for what he's enabling us to do or not, right? So clearly this judgment will not determine whether or not we're saved. That's already been determined in this life by God's grace when we embraced Christ as Savior and Lord. There's, but there is going to be a future judgment that takes into account what we've done with the grace that he's given us. And I think that's what Paul is alluding to here when he speaks of a future in which each one will bear his own load. Nobody will be able to say in that day, it's not my fault. You know, the devil made me do it. Or, well, I had bad parents. Or, that woman you gave me, as Adam once said, right? Uh, Nobody will be able to say that. So, again, in my view, this is what Paul has in mind here in Galatians 6.5. It's not that he's unconcerned with the responsibility we each have to bear our own load now as Scott McKnight was applying the principle, Uh, but rather that we bear it now in the light of the fact that we'll have to bear it then, right? We know ultimately we'll be held responsible for all that we do as Christians, how we build, how we all take part in the building of the body of Christ. And so that means if we're going to have to be responsible for it then, of course it certainly implies... In light of that, we better be responsible now, right? So it's a good application that he gave, but it's not a complete application, right? Given, I think, what Paul has in mind here. And because each one of us must bear his or her own load at the end of the day, there are two things we have to avoid, conceit and comparing ourselves with others. There's probably more things we have to avoid, but these are the two things that it seems to me Paul highlights here. First, we must avoid conceit. He says in verse 3, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This relates both to what came before it and what comes after it. Here in verse 3. 
Such conceit will prevent us from bearing one another's burdens as we should, as Paul said in verses 1 and 2. The four here refers back to verses 1 and 2, that word four at the beginning of verse 3. But such conceit will also prevent us from taking proper responsibility for our own burdens, as Paul will go on to say in verse 5. It will also prevent us from accurately examining and assessing ourselves before the Lord, as we're going to see in verse 4. Paul's concerned that we avoid the same kind of conceit that he's warned about in the preceding context that led up to this discussion of bearing one another's burdens and each one bearing his own load. Look what he said again in chapter 5, verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the idea he has in mind here in verse 3. That such conceit is a common temptation for Christians is assumed by Paul, not only here, but also in his other writings. In fact, Paul had a thorn in the flesh to prevent him from such conceit, <laughs> right? Uh, but let's look at a few texts where he, he emphasizes this idea of pride or conceit. Romans 12.3, for example, in his epistle to the Romans, he says, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now here he's talking to believers, right? He's not saying everybody in the world has a measure of faith. Sorry, John Wesley, that's a misapplication of this text. Uh, this is speaking of believers. And he's saying if there are some believers who think they have a stronger faith than other believers that they think have a weaker faith, Paul says, don't think more highly of yourself than you are. Remember this, anyone who has faith got it from God. If you have a stronger faith, it's cause, not because you're better than them. It's God who's given to each one a measure of faith. Each believer, right? Because he's talking to believers, a measure of faith. This leads to my next verse here, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Kind of highlights this same idea. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? They had lots of gifts in Corinth, and they were all boasting as though they were somehow the author of the good things that were in them. I was thinking, wait a minute, if they're gifts, that means you got them from God. There's no room for boasting here. Unless you're boasting in the Lord. More on that a little later. Uh, Philippians 2, 3, and 4 is another good text to consider. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. As David Guzik has said, if, you, if, you, if I esteem you above me, and you esteem me above you, a marvelous thing happens. We have a community where everyone is looked up to and no one is looked down on. Isn't that a wonderful place to be? If we're all so busy esteeming one another is better than ourselves, we're in a body of believers where everyone's looked up to and no one's looked down on. At any rate, it is clear from passages such as these, as well as the text before us this morning, that Paul viewed pride as a grave danger that the Christian must avoid. He assumes all Christians 
will battle this in their spiritual warfare. They will battle pride. Hence the constant warnings. Why warn people constantly about something if it's not a danger to them, right? It is a danger. Pride causes us to forget that we ourselves are completely dependent upon the grace of God, and it does this by deception. As Paul says in this verse, if anyone thinks himself to be something, in Galatians 6.3, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. This led Matthew Henry to conclude that self-conceit is nothing but self-deceit. That's a good summary of what Paul means, isn't it? It is pride that deceives us into thinking we're something when we're nothing. But then that leads me to another question. (coughs) What exactly does Paul mean when he says nothing? He uses the word nothing. Does he mean that we're nothing in the sense that we're totally worthless? When he says he who thinks himself is something when he's nothing, does he mean we're completely worthless? Nothing in that sense? I don't think so. Does he mean that we're nothing in comparison to God? That would certainly be true, (laughs) Uh, right? Or does he mean that we're nothing in comparison to what we're deceived into thinking we are? Uh, I think that's what he's getting at. That we're nothing in comparison to what we're deceived into thinking we are. I think he has that probably foremost in his mind. After all, he's speaking in the context of the need to bear one another's burdens by helping one who's caught in some sin, and he warns us to be careful lest we too are tempted. As we saw in our previous study of this passage a few weeks ago, if we're not careful, we can start to think that we're better than someone else who's struggling with some sin that we might not be dealing with in our lives, or at least not in the same way or to the same degree as the one who needs to be restored, who's trapped in some sin. But a spiritual person, as Paul has referred to it in verse 1, and we spent a lot of time talking about what he meant by that, as you recall a few weeks ago, a spiritual person will realize that he too is capable of falling into sin and will be moved by compassion to help his brother rather than look down on him. So Paul's saying, you know, we need to be very careful here Uh, when we're bearing the burdens of other people, uh, recognizing that we too can fall and not becoming, right, full of ourselves, thinking we're better than we are, and being self-deceived, looking at that other person and thinking maybe we're better than them. The point here is that we should be aware that a prideful attitude toward others in their struggle with sin necessarily means that we're self-deceived. We should always have the attitude there, but by the grace of God go I. Instead, we too easily think, well, I must be better then. And that's self-deception. And that's pride. In this sense, we are tricked into thinking we're something when we are nothing. When in reality, we're no better than anyone else. We're all just sinners saved by grace. And anything we have, we have from God. And this leads to our next danger here. Paul says, second, we must avoid comparing ourselves with others. Conceit seems to inevitably lead to comparing ourselves with others. Hence, Paul moves right into this concept. 
in verse 4. And this is one reason to avoid both conceit and comparing ourselves to one another. He says in, in verse 4, but let each one examine his own work. And there's an emphasis on his own here. Meaning our focus when we come to, because in the context we're bearing one another's burdens, and part of that means helping restoring a sinning brother or sister in the Lord. And Paul wants us to be very careful to examine our own work. <laughs> Keep our focus first and foremost on ourselves. And that will be a very humbling thing when we do that. And then we'll be in the proper mindset to help someone else, won't we? But let each one examine his own work, to be focused on the work constantly of other people, rather than our own, is the idea. Obviously, if you read Paul's epistles, he had something to say about the work of other people sometimes, right? But what's, what's the, and we certainly will have something to say about the work of other people if we see them in sin and we have to restore them. There's judgments that have to be made, right? The point is, what's the attitude with which we're doing it? Are we coming with a conceited, prideful kind of tone that says, I'm judging you in comparison to me. I'm not struggling with this because I'm better than you and we're self-deceived, or are we coming and saying, boy, as I look at my own life, I could so easily be you right now. I could so easily be trapped by the same sin. Not only am I no better than you, I'm probably a lot worse. Uh, in fact, it, it's easy for me to say with Paul, I am the chief of sinners when I look at myself. You come to someone with that attitude, and you're approaching them as a spiritual person, as he said in verse 1. So, or 2. <laughs> um, Let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Now, when Paul issues, once again, the primary command in this verse, that we must each examine his own work, I want to focus that he assumes it's necessary because we're attempted, we're, we're tempted, rather, to boast in comparison with others, obviously. He uses a Greek verb that means here to examine, to approve after testing or examination. It's a word that was used for testing of metals to see whether they were pure. Um, this word implies a very careful examination that we must each make of our own work or whatever it is that we do in our lives, particularly in service to the Lord, but also in service to one another, right, as we serve the Lord. When we each conduct such an examination and find something worthy of approval, then we will each have a cause for rejoicing in our own efforts rather than in comparison to the efforts of others. Now, the Greek noun translated rejoicing here in the New King James Version actually refers to the ground or reason one has for boasting about something. Um, this idea is better reflected in the ESV, for example, uh, which renders it as a reason to boast. And I think the NASB does something similar. Um, I think the King James Version and the New King James Version prefer to translate it rejoicing here as like a cause for rejoicing. Um, because they want to avoid the idea that a Christian should ever boast in himself for any reason. Um, 
They would certainly want to avoid the NIV skewed translation that encourages a man to take pride in himself. That's a terrible translation of this. Um, I mean, that, that really goes against everything Paul's saying in the passage. <laughs> I mean, you wonder how they could possibly ever have thought that was a good translation. Because um, Paul is certainly one is to avoid pride here. So what do we do with this? When, when you use a word that means, when he says, let each one examine himself in his own work, and then he will have a cause for boasting in himself alone rather than in another. Is all boasting about something we find in ourselves to be considered a prideful or a sinful boasting? Well, it certainly is if it is self-reliant or self-aggrandizing boasting, the kind of boasting you do, especially when you compare yourself to other people. It's, It's the kind of boasting, that kind of boasting, that James warns us about when he writes, Come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Paul certainly can't mean boasting like that, right, in ourselves. But again, is all boasting about something we find in ourselves then to be considered the kind of prideful or sinful boasting about which Paul has warned us elsewhere and about which James warns us in James 4, 13 through 16 that I just read? I don't think so. For after examining ourselves thoroughly and finding something worthy of approval, we'll also discover something else. We'll discover that that thing worthy of approval is a result of God's working in us. And that's something to boast about and to rejoice in. We'll remember what Paul wrote to the Ephesians on this point in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, there's faith being coming from God again. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When we examine ourselves closely, take our eyes off other people. Don't compare ourselves to them. But look to God's word and compare ourselves to that, right? And we find things in ourselves that are good. We'll also discover because we know we're sinners saved by grace, that it's the work of God. These are things that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we'll boast about that. Not about me and how much better I am than someone else, but look at what God is doing in me. I can rejoice about that. I can boast about that. In fact, that's an act of worship. Boasting about that. Look what God has done in me. I can hardly believe it. (laughs) So we should never boast in such a way that we trust in and glorify our own works rather than the grace and working of God in our lives. But if God is working in our lives, 
then there will be something worthy of approval and thus worthy of boasting about, won't there? In the right kind of way. That's what I think. And I think this is why Paul elsewhere teaches that it is always a good thing to boast about what God has done in and through us. And I'll give you a few examples. The first in 1 Corinthians 1. I'll be looking at 1 Corinthians and then in a couple of texts in 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 1, I'll begin reading in verse 26, where Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Whenever I read this passage, I'm greatly encouraged that I'm just the kind of material with which God likes to work. (laughs) Because that's me, all of that, right? Um, And then he says the reason for this, that no flesh should glory. The word could be translated boast. It's actually the verb that's related to the noun that Paul used in Galatians 6.4 for a cause for boasting. So it could be translated that no flesh should boast in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ, it's because he worked in you, right? Not because of something you did. Who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That, as it is written, he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. Now, the New King James has, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. The word could easily be translated boasting, as I've said. There is a kind of boasting, then, that we should be doing. We should be boasting in the Lord. And in this context, it's in what God has done for us in Christ, what he's doing in and through us because of Christ. We can boast in that and not be taking any credit for ourselves because we're giving all the credit to God. 2 Corinthians 1.12, Paul writes, for our boasting, and this is a related noun to the one he used in, in Galatians 6.4, for our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God. And more abundantly toward you. So what's he ultimately boasting in there? Look at the way the grace of God was manifested in our lives. We're boasting about that. About what God can do through his grace. What he has done by his grace in us. 2 Corinthians 10, 17 and 18, he writes, But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Citing the same text he cited in 1 Corinthians 1, which again could be rendered, But he who boasts, let him boast in the Lord. And then he says, For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. We too may boast about what God is doing in and through us, and we may look forward to doing so when we stand before him at the final judgment, placing all our confidence in what he has done rather than in our own efforts or abilities. So, if uh, God has granted you a special faith through your difficulties right, you're enduring right now, There's nothing wrong with saying, look, that the faith that God is giving me 
Isn't he great? He can give you the same kind of faith. That's proper boasting in the Lord. It's not saying, look how great my faith is. I'm better than you. No, it's saying, hey, look what God can do in sinful people like me. Look at the faith he can give someone like you and me. If he can do it for me, he can do it for you. Look how great he is. That's proper boasting in the Lord. That kind of thing. We should all want to do that. We should all, when we examine ourselves, find a reason to do that. Any, I know every believer in this room has a reason to do that. I can see the reason for you to do it, even if you can't. Sometimes I'm better at seeing faith in other people than they are in seeing it in themselves. That's one of the ways that we can encourage one another. Come alongside them and say, here's how I see Christ in you. And, it, and then they'll be reminded what they have to boast about in the Lord. And in the process, they'll, they'll be thanking him, praising him, giving him the honor he deserves. That's the kind of boasting we should want to do. Not just that we can do, because it's okay to boast like that and not sinful. But we should want to do it. With Paul's admonitions in mind, then, I will conclude by encouraging all of us to ask ourselves questions like this, especially as we're preparing to partake of the Lord's Supper together. When I put my own life to the test, do I find in myself good reason to boast about what God is doing for, in, through me? Or do I find myself constantly comparing myself to others so that I can feel better about myself? Am I like the Pharisee, in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men, like this tax collector over here. And then he finds the ways that he thinks he's better than the tax collector. And Jesus says he prays thus with himself. He's not even really talking to God. He's giving himself a pep talk and patting himself on the back. Is that what we find ourselves doing? It's easy to fall into for all of us. Hence, the warnings that we have in Scripture. None of us are above that, being pharisaical. The moment we think we are, we become pharisaical. Right? You've got to be careful about this. As James Montgomery Boyce points out, to use others as a norm is a kind of escape. It's the way we escape examining ourselves properly in the light of God's word. Because we can always find someone we think is worse than us and compare ourselves to that person so we can make ourselves feel better. We come to the word of God and compare ourselves to his standard. We'd be like Job if we're listening to the spirit at all, repenting in sackcloth and ashes. We'll be like Isaiah, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. That's the way we'll, that'll be our attitude. We'll be crying out with Paul, as I said earlier, I am the chief of sinners. That will be our attitude. When we try to compare ourselves to others, we're trying to escape having to confront the holiness of God.
let us not try to escape that way. The results of careful self-examination before the Lord. And if we find little or nothing worthy of approval, then, then we need to go to the Lord and ask him to work in us. Help us trust him. In, increase our faith, as the disciples once said to Jesus. Increase our faith. That's a good thing to ask God to do, always. And he's the only one who can do it. But if, on the other hand, uh, you find something good, you find that you're not the wicked person you once were, that there's actually been some improvement, however little you might find it to be, it's worth boasting about in the Lord. So we need to examine ourselves, but as a final application, we need to avoid another extreme, and that is the kind of self-centered introspection that loses sight of God's word as the standard by which we must always judge ourselves. Some Christians are very good at self-examination, but not in accordance with the word. If, if you're examining yourself the way Paul is saying here, it's so you can look for things to boast about in the Lord. It's, it's not so you can wallow in self-pity or neg- negativism. It's good to be down on myself. It's good to, with Paul in Romans 7, right, <laughs> look at myself and say, in and of myself, ugh, I'm a disaster. It's bad if we can't get into Romans 8 and remember there's no condemnation for us in Christ Jesus. And some Christians fall into this navel-gazing sort of introspection that they can't break out of and constantly focus on everything bad and never see anything good that God is doing in them. They're really good at seeing what they're, what's bad in them. There are some Christians like that. And they're, but they're really bad at seeing what God is doing. And that's just a different kind of pride. And they're not boasting in the Lord, and they're not thanking God for what he's doing because they refuse to let themselves see it. That's wicked. He deserves the praise, the glory, the thanksgiving, right, for the good that he's doing in you. You need to learn how to see it. If you're one of those people like me who struggles with a weak conscience and is really good about what's seeing wrong with you, right, I'm good at seeing what's wrong with me. It took me years to discover as a young believer that I, I had my perspective all wrong. I need to start looking for what I see that God is doing good in me Because if I'm not doing that and not give him the thanks and the glory and the honor he is due, I'm not worshiping him like I should. He deserves the credit for anything good in me. And if I refuse to let myself see it, I dishonor him. I rob him of his glory. I refuse to thank him. That is a sin. So there's two sides to this, right? On the one hand, we need to be willing to see ourselves as we really are, in and of ourselves. But we also need to be able to see what God has done in spite of who we really are, in and of ourselves. We need to learn what Augustine said. I think this was, is true biblically. He said, God knows how when he looks at us to hate in us what we have made and to love in us what he has made. 
We need to learn to do that, don't we? To hate in us what we have made, but to love in us what God has made. Boasting in the Lord and giving him all the glory.